when I got off that plane and came to the United States and just met so many nice, can-do, positive people who didn't judge me for anything, I was like, I could live here. This is an amazing place. You really can make something of yourself. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 3 of Always an Expat, a podcast dedicated to elevating expat stories, brought to you by fellow expat, yours truly Richard Taylor and Plan First Wealth. My guest today is Steve DeFranco. Steve is a senior account executive at Adams Gabbett in Overland Park, Kansas. Steve married an American and raised an American family and has built quite the life for them all here in Leewood, Kansas. And obviously, we're going to talk all about that. But what's particularly interesting and unique about Steve is how he came from humble, hard scrabble beginnings in Muswell Hill, North London, but went on to join the ska band Bad Manners, fronted by none other than Mr. Buster Blood Vessel. I love it. Uh, as a touring drummer, and spent 10 years traveling the world with them. So there's lots to unpack here, and I know we're going to struggle to keep this one on time, so let's get going. But before we do, I just have to read a short disclaimer. Always an Expat is affiliated with Plan First Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of Plan First Wealth. Information presented is for educational purposes only. So, without further ado, let's get straight into it. Hi, Steve. Welcome to Always an Expat. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me today, Richard. Of course, of course. I'm excited to get into this one. This is a uh, truly unique and interesting story. I always say I love expat stories because they are all unique and interesting, but this one is particularly unique and interesting. So with that in mind, Steve, tell us your story. Tell us an abridged version of your story. (laughs) We've only got an hour. Well, you know, I kind of uh, grew up in, I suppose, uh, council estate in uh, North London, Borenwood in the 70s and uh you know i come from um, a family like most families actually uh broken my father was never in the picture i can't believe my mum was 23 with uh three boys a single mother and living on the estates and they're not the best places to kind of grow up you kind of written off as children on those estates a lot of times if you don't have a good network and uh we kind of grew up like that uh, my dad was never in the picture he was in and out of prison and kind of a bit of a criminal to be perfectly honest with you which kind of didn't help me or my family growing up. You know, when you have a parent that's incessantly in trouble and doing stuff like that, it kind of follows you around. Hence, I have a name change. I took my wife's name at our wedding some 27 years ago. But um, growing up in uh, Borenwood, it was great. I mean, I had a lot of good friends there. We had a gang of guys that we would go around and uh, pretty much menace the neighborhood and do all sorts of stuff like that. But I found that I was really into music as a young kid and I think a lot of those estates, you can have really big dreams, but those estates can really pull you down and drag you down and you don't ever fulfill those dreams. You never really escape. It's like the coal miners' kids, they end up going back down the pit because their dad did it. And, you know, statistically speaking, I suppose I really shouldn't be living in Leewood, Kansas. I went through uh, school, pretty much quit when I was 15 or 16, just written off really in school. I was thinking about this this morning because I've never done a podcast and talk about it and it's a strange time I was thinking about the teachers that had an impact on me I had a teacher at Holmes Hill Secondary Modern School in Borenwood called Miss Woods I'd love to find her and she was just really kind because my mother couldn't afford to give me a brass instrument back in those days you know the kids who had money had the brass instruments and 
she knew I was so wanted to be in the school band. And one weekend, she must have drank a lot of beer because after the weekend, she came to school one day with a broom handle and she had nailed beer bottle tops to it in sets of three. So it was all the way down. It was like a tree of beer bottle tops. And I used to stamp it on the floor to keep time with the band. And that was my first introduction to percussion. It was a beer bottle top broomstick. You know, and she was the same lady with like when Freddie Mercury and Queen released uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. She was the same lady that brought that 45 into school and she made us listen to it back to back to back to back. And she just said, you know, this would change the history of music forever. This is amazing. So I had a couple of really good teachers who cared for me and had a couple of dinner ladies who used to cuddle me and stuff like that, you know. But my mother remarried when I was about 15 or 16 and we moved to a really nice town called uh, Harpenden in Hertfordshire. And it is a really nice town. I've got lots of great friends there. But coming from Boreham Wood and talking all like a cockney a little bit, you know, with the way I spoke, I didn't speak like I came. Harpenden's very posh, well-spoken people. I didn't fit in. You know, and I would date girls and I'm sure their parents thought, well, you know, why has he brought the gardener home? Because I just didn't really kind of fit into the to the mold of uh, there. So my mum remarried, a great guy. and uh, But I didn't fit in. I didn't fit into the family. All my old friends had gone where I grew up and, all my new friends, although some of them are really good friends still now, but I just didn't fit in at that time in my life, you know, and uh, went up to London and just kind of living in bedsits and living in kind of like uh, just people's houses and living on the street a couple of times. And How old are you here, Steve? How old were you when you moved to London? I was about 18 and I was really wanting to get into the drumming world, playing drums professionally. I mean, I think, you know, having left school with just a high school education and I took my O-levels, but I didn't even go and get the results. I was just done. Steve, to this day, you still don't know what you got in your O-levels. No, I think I did pretty good, actually, because I wasn't a bad student. You know, <laughs> I actually dug out just this weekend one of my old school reports from Homesville. All it said throughout was, Stephen, if he applied himself, he would be really good. And if he didn't talk as much, he'd be even better. That's amazing. You're still, like, however many years on, 30 years on, for you still don't know your results. That's amazing. Yeah, well, I, I didn't really see it as a, an obstacle, at that time in life, you know, I think it comes back to haunt you a little bit down the road. But I just went up to London. I started playing in bands around the pubs and clubs in London, really just looking for an opportunity. Steve, how would you learn how to drum? Where were the drums that you learned on originally? Well, when my mum remarried, the guy that she married, his name is Mike, he bought me a kit. It was like 60 pounds. It was not very good. And I just kind of listened to music. I grew up listening to so much music as a kid. I think it was my escape, having such a kind of tumultuous upbringing. I think the music was my escape. It really was. It was somewhere I could go and just listen to things. And I had a few lessons with a guy. I'm on Facebook friends with him. He's probably about 70 now. His name's Colin Wilkinson from Watford. And I used to work at the Greengrocers on a Saturday morning and uh, take my money and cycle from Harpenden to Watford and have a lesson and give the money to Colin. I did that for a bit, but it just didn't really work out and went up to London. You know, I just listened to so much music. The first band I ever saw was Ian Dury and the Blockheads. I've still got the ticket in um, about 78, 79. It was the Do It Yourself tour. And I saw Charlie Charles on drums. And I was like, I want to be that guy. I've got to be that guy one day. And, you know, Ian Dury was my hero growing up and their music and everything. And I uh, went to London and there was a rehearsal studio because no one has big you know, basements like I have here in, in America where you can set up your equipment and rehearse when you feel like it. Back home, I think that's why England's such an amazing place for music. I think there's so much talent there, raw talent, 
and you pay to practice. So you really do work hard. And I think it's such a creative island. I mean, if you think about the geographical size of the UK or, you know, England in general, just look at the bands that come out of that tiny space. It's amazing to me. So I thought, well, part of it is trying to be in the right place at the right time. And I met this guy called John Dalligan. He's like my older brother. He's like my Arthur Daly. So I used to go into John's studio. He had six arches in the Holloway Road, right by the tube station. And each arch was built out. So it was a room and you could practice in it. It was like, I don't know, three pounds an hour back in those days. And I used to go in there and ask him for a job. Give us a job. I haven't got a job. Give us a job. I haven't got a job. This went on for a while. Then one day he said, do you want a job? I said, sure. And he just said, you can make the tea. You can book the bands. You can clean the studios. I'm like, can I sleep here too? And I used to sleep in the studio at night. And I used to paint the arches at night. It was kind of fun. How long were you living there for? Well, I was in and out of there for about six, seven months. Really? But I was working there for longer. You were working and living in there. Yeah, I used to literally open it. Wow. I used to open it at 10 a.m. and shut at 10 at night. And when I wasn't doing a shift, I would use one of the studios to practice. And John was really kind. He helped me with my first drum kit. It was this amazing black Pearl BLX. I wish I still had it. It was, it was beautiful. But, you know, I got to know John really well, and uh, he was just really a great guy. We're still friends. I took my family to meet him in France a couple of years back. But when I was there, bands would come in and say, hey, you know, we're auditioning drummers. I'd ask, can I audition? And I would also go up and down the corridor and listen to other drummers. They'd be like Keith LeBlanc from Tackhead, and he's amazing. And then I would hear like another guy who wasn't so amazing. I'm like, okay, well, I'm somewhere in the middle. And I got to get to this part and I would listen and I would like emulate and practice and just practice. And I bought books and I taught myself really, to be perfectly honest. And I would audition for different bands and I would join about five bands. And then I would go around London and there'd be nights I'd put like three bands on in a bar. I'd play for like three of the bands or, or if I could, all the bands. But then one day Bad Manners came in and uh, Buster came into the studio with the band and they said, hey, we're auditioning drummers today. We got about 10 guys showing up and I was nobody. I was green. I played the local bar to like 10 people, yeah, 20 people. No one cares if you're there. And I said, can I have a go? And he's like, yeah, you play the drums. I'm like, yeah, I play the drums. He goes, do you know any of our music? I'm like, yeah, I've seen you on TV, you know? So he said, come in right now. So I went in, first person in there at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I played three songs, I played Lip Up Fatty. I think I played the Can Can. And then they did a song called King Scarfer. And during the day, all these guys came into the studio and uh, yeah, but they were like, you know, I just finished touring with like Hazel O'Connor or Toya Wilcox. And I'm just like, I'm out of that league at this moment in my life. I'm just a young guy. And that evening at six o'clock, Buster walks out and he just says, he gives me a cassette tape. He gives me a C90 and he says, here's 35 songs. Learn them tonight. Your first show's tomorrow. And I'm like, okay. So, you know, it was kind of amazing. So I learned the songs, but I'd always had these like uh, visions of what I would be doing when I knew I'd be on the right track in life, you know? So for instance, being in the right place at the right time, being surrounded by music all day was one of my objectives. So I'm in the right place, maybe at the right time. And then one of my visions was if a tour bus ever pulls up outside somewhere and I'm getting on the tour bus, I'm doing something right. And I had a visions of one day being on a tour bus. So Sure enough, the next day, outside Backstreet Studios, the Bad Manners tour bus, you can call it that, shows up and I'm getting on it. And they're all doing drugs and hanging out. And I'm just like got my little Sony Walkman on and I'm just kind of sitting there hanging out. And I didn't even know where I was playing. I had no clue where I was going, nothing. And we get up into Derbyshire 
And I asked, I said, where are we playing? They goes, oh, we're the headline band at the Bulldog Bash. And I didn't really know what Bulldog Bash was back then, you know. And there's like 35,000 people. And my other vision was, if I ever sit down on a drum stool, on a drum throne, and I look between the symbols, all I can see is people. I know I'm on the right track. And I never forget, I walked up that ramp, having never rehearsed with them, 35,000 crazy people and Buster and walked out and sat down on that drum store and looked out and all I could see was people. And I was just like, you know, I'm never letting this go. I'm never letting this go. And, you know, it's not like it was as good as it gets, but it was all the guys in the band. I think the reason I got the job in the band, I think that most of the guys in the band were like me. They were written off, parents in and out of prison, probably, you know, not really kind of careful, orphans. And I think that's why I got it. I think that, you know, they knew that I could hold my own in the band. I wasn't going to get pushed around. I was going to survive. And it was a band of people that survive. And I mean, Bad Manners are still touring today since like the mid 70s. They are, we call them affectionately Fatty. Fatty is on the road somewhere tonight playing somewhere. And it's amazing. I mean, his body, he should donate it to medical science when he goes, because I'll tell you right now, he should not be alive. I mean, he's just crazy life he's led. And he still owes me money too, but I don't really ever intend on collecting that. He gave me an opportunity that changed my life, absolutely changed it forever. So I'm eternally grateful for that. Steve, you think they just recognised a kindred spirit in you? That was the deciding factor. Yeah, I don't know, you know, because the band was a real mix of cultures as well. You know, we had guys from Jamaica, you know, the Caribbean, the West Indies, St. Kitts, St. Lucia. I mean, these are guys, I don't know if I'll ever see them again. We were like brothers. You know, some of them are not on social media. Alex was one of my favorite. He played trumpet. Alex Arundel from St. Kitts. And he quit music. He actually went to drive a London bus and he was involved in an accident that made him have to quit driving a London bus. And he couldn't play trumpet. And he got a job as a security guard at a very large Tesco's in London. And he was fired for helping old people steal because he felt sorry for them. <laughs> <laughs> he was such a great guy. He was helping old people oh, steal brilliant. food. Modern day Robin Hood. Yeah, I'd love to find him again. The saxophone player, Matt, who drank more than anybody I ever knew and played the baritone sax. Just uh, amazing guys. And there's lots of videos online when you can see us all together. We had a really great band, really great touring band, very tight. And, you know, doing 200 plus shows a year in 40 countries every year for the best part of 10 years. It will really bring you together. You'll really find out about who you are. And you grow up. I'd love to explore that, the touring and stuff, but just a couple of things to reflect on. That moment when, in the course of two days, you've gone from working in a studio, hoping for a break, to getting on a tour bus and sat on your drum throne looking at thirty-five to 40,000 people. Having never practiced, having never played with this band, Yes, obviously exciting, ticking off like a vision in your head, but like also that must have been absolutely terrifying, no? Or were you just too young to even worry about that stuff? What was more terrifying for me was after the show because no one said a word to me. So, yeah, <laughs> I know. That sounds terrifying. It was because, <laughs> you know, I was just so hungry to escape, to create a life for myself. You know, I didn't have a, a fancy degree sitting on the wall or I didn't. You know, I'd worked on building sites. I'd been a hod carrier. I'd done anything for money to survive. But after the show, I mean, no one said a word to me. And we got on the bus and they're all drinking and partying. And I'm like, did I get the job? I mean, was it a one-off? You know, I don't know. We got right back towards London. And the saxophone player, Matt, turns to me and he goes, yeah, good job tonight. And then like he said, like, what are you doing next week? 
I said, nothing. He goes, well, about a week's time. I said, nothing. He said, like, do you want to go to Spain? We've got like about 20 shows in Spain. I'm like, sure. He goes, have you got a passport? I said, no. He goes, go and get a passport then. So I ran down to, I think it's Petit France, and I got myself a passport. And then we go to Spain. And then whilst we're in Spain, on the end of that tour, he said, what are you doing in the next couple of weeks? I said, nothing. He goes, we're going to Ireland. Are you available? I'm like, he went from, can you do it to, are you available? And I'm like, yeah, I'm available. And that was... Uh, a really crazy experience because uh, I mean we played in Northern Ireland, which was you know still the troubles. A lot of troubles were going on, and we're just like musicians. We'll take money from the Protestants and the Catholics. We didn't care, but we got you know guns pointed at us. We had uh, just crazy, scary times in Northern Ireland. Why'd you have guns pointed at you? We pulled into a club called the Donegal Celtic in Belfast. It was and. I was sitting next to Rico and we thought the promoter came in and it was a DC, it was a Catholic club and it was an all ages show. So all the kids could come in the afternoon and we were going down south after that. And these cars came in and we just thought it was the promoter coming to kind of greet us. And then the bus had a well where the stairs came up and uh, we popped the door and this guy got in and he just stood in the well and he just pulled out a gun and he just waved it in front of me and Rico like this. And he just said, basically, if you guys play here today, We'll blow the place up. We'll kill you. Wow. And so we're like, okay, what do we do? We had to discuss it for a while, but that was deadly serious. We didn't play that show. And then um, we ended up going down south. What was really kind of fun though, we go down, we're going to Drogheda next and we go through the checkpoint and they funnel you into this like big kind of corridor with these huge earth mounds either side. And there's all these like machine guns, 50 caliber guns pointed at you as you go through back in those days. And we would go there and they would come on our bus to check who we were. And there was like this captain guy had come on and he'd go, yeah, what are you guys doing here? We're like, well, we're bad manners. We're touring. And he'd just lean out the window and just wave at everyone. Because I got bad manners on the bus. And like, uh, so all these squaddies would come out and wave at us from behind their guns. And we'd give them t-shirts and stuff like that. And then we'd just go on through and go down south, you know. It was always kind of fraught with really funny situations. Steve, just before we explore touring a little bit, I'm just struck by something that's come up a lot which is that residual feeling that you've still got 30, 40 years later that your future was almost predestined. You've written off at birth almost. I mean, I can't imagine 23 years old with three kids, three boys, that must be brutally hard. But one of the things that often comes up on here and the criticisms of Britain, and this is often from people reflecting on how much they love Britain as an expat, is that kind of sense that there's often people holding you back. You know, America has a can-do attitude. Britain has a, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't try that. Who do you think you are trying that attitude? But what you're explaining is almost that on steroids, this kind of written off right from the beginning. It seems to have left like a lasting impression on you. Well, you know, I had good friends. I mean, I made some good friends and stuff like that growing up. But I think just the way we grew up and the stigma attached to my dad and stuff like that, I probably was a sensitive kid, but I didn't really have a chance to be a sensitive kid, you know? I used to fight all the time, all the time, because someone would say something about my father or my mother or my brothers and stuff like that. We would fight all the time as kids. So I think I became very kind of inward as a young kid. That's how I found music, I think. I think it was something that my dad couldn't take away from me and no one could take away from me. You know, I would just sit and listen to music all the time. And I truly believe that the music or music industry in general, it saved my life. I really do. I think, you know, I could have gone probably so many ways. I could still be carrying a hod, but I just didn't want that. I didn't want that. When I came to America and having, you know, never really been here, that first time at the end of the Irish tour, Matt said to me, we got 56 shows in 62 dates in America. Are you available to do them? 
I'm like, yeah, when I got off that plane and came to the United States and just met so many nice, can-do, positive people who didn't judge me for anything, I was like, I could live here. I didn't think I would at that time in my life, but I was like, this is an amazing place. You really can make something of yourself here and change your life in this country if you really want to do it. And I was like, I don't know, I, I say predestined to be here, I suppose I was. Do you think that's a criticism that we can lob at Britain then, maybe even now, that we're just born into a box and you're expected to stay there? You know, stratified society? I think there's a lot of that mentality. So, for instance, I have Facebook Live, just about everybody does. You know, it's kind of funny. My Facebook page is kind of interesting because I have all of my Leeward friends who are very lovely people, all very professional, all went to college. Literally, I'm probably the only one who didn't. Actually, my daughter, I took her to college on Saturday. She's the first person ever in my family to go to college. Wow, well done. So Congrats. that's kind of amazing. Yeah. So and I've got all my Leeward friends and they're all fantastic friends, really great friends. We're very professional. Then I have a lot of my Boreham Wood friends where I grew up in Boreham Wood. And that's a completely different subset of people. Wonderful people, hardworking, honest people, but they've never kind of escaped. Some of them have never escaped that area. And they've never really kind of like taken a chance like I did. So it's interesting to see. I mean, even the profanity on the two, it's amazing to see what people say from England to America on Facebook. It blows my mind, actually. But I've had friends who've written to me personally in Facebook and just tell me how proud they are that I escaped. And you know, about 15 years ago, Bad Manners were touring America and they came to Kansas City. And like an idiot, I said, you can stay at my house for a couple of days if you want to. And uh, The whole band? Yeah, yeah. It was funny. They had the bus parked on my driveway and like, they're all like wandering off into the woods, smoking dope. In the, I've got acreage on the back of my house. They're all smoking weed in the back of the woods. And it was great. But when they left to go up to Omaha, Buster, uh, he was crying. And he just said to me, he goes, I can't believe it. He goes, you're the only person who's ever escaped bad manners. And no one normally escapes. So you escaped your life in the UK and then you escaped bad manners. Well, I mean, you think about this too, though. The music industry is fraught with so much temptation and, and craziness. And we saw guys ruin their lives with drink and drugs and then try and get married and then try and have a stable life. And they just couldn't do it. You know, I, I left. I moved to America. Leap year day, 1996, with two bags of clothes and a bicycle and a dream to marry this pretty Italian girl from the hill in St. Louis. And here we are 27 years later. Steve, tell us, mere muggles, what is touring really like? Is it sex, drugs, rock and roll? Is it all fun and games? Is it emotionally exhausting and damaging? Is it everything and nothing? What is 10 years on the road with a band like that really like? It's living life to the worst example you can ever possibly imagine. You can really live your life to the worst example ever if you really want to. I was always like the guy that took photographs. I was always the guy that got on the other band's bus and rode with them to shows. We had a band that toured with us. I would go and sit in their little bus and hang out with them to meet them and make friends and stuff like that. It is really hard work. You know, I mean, many, 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 many nights I would be on a bus. We'd get to a venue and you'd play a great show. And there's all these people who want to hang out with you and they want to party with you and hang out. And many a time I found myself at two o'clock in the morning sitting on the edge of the bed on my own. It can be the loneliest place as well because... They all go home. You're sitting on the edge of a bed in a motel room somewhere in, I don't know, in America or in East Germany or wherever it is in the world. You're sitting there with a beer on your own. Do a few years of that. There's more times you're sitting on the end of the bed alone than you are not. So I think it changes you. And I, 
think you also grow up. You know, by the time I hit 29, I was a different man than I was when I was 20. Yeah. So then how did you escape that? And how did you come to America? Are they one of the same things? There was a couple of things that happened on the road. One of them was pretty instrumental. I just started to change. I thought that, you know, I'd had a crap life with my dad and stuff like that. And I think that I wanted to be a dad one day. And again, I visualized what a dad might look like in my mind, you know, not having have one that's in my life, but I visualized what I would do if I was a dad. But I also saw that I'm not really on the right track to do that. And there was a few things that happened on the road that made me realize that these are not the people I want to be around anymore. I don't need this anymore. There was a guy that came on tour with us. I wish I could find him. His name was Scott. I don't know his last name. And he wrote a journal and he wrote it for six weeks because back in those days, people didn't have laptops like we're using today. And he wrote it for six weeks. And he said to the guys at the beginning, this won't impact any of you. There'll be nothing in my journal that will ever get back to anybody you know. It's my personal experiences. And we got to Portland like five weeks later, six weeks later, and the guys in the band, two of them, drunk, burnt it. Yeah. You know, stuff like that goes on because people get so paranoid on drink and drugs and it gets crazy. And a fight broke out on the bus because the guy, the American guy who's from New York City, he hit the saxophone player. And then the three English guys got up to fight the American guy. And I stood beside the American guy with another American guy. And we were just bigger than them. We kicked their ass. So they backed off. But it was a defining moment for me. It was like, this is not who I am as a person. This is not what I believe in as a person. So there was things like that that happened. And then I took some time off and went out to San Francisco. I had an H-1B visa and I didn't want to mess it up. I was in San Francisco for about three or four months. Then started kind of migrating across America with a friend and just hiking and just traveling across the United States. And I got to Kansas City and my friend who lived here had a barbecue. I didn't know Casey was a big barbecue town back in those days and uh, he invited some of his friends over and in walked this 20-something-year-old Italian girl, Sicilian girl, called Grace. And I was immediate. I went, I'm going to marry that girl. And I convinced her within a week. That's probably why I didn't say all so much. I convinced her within a week that I'm going to come back and marry you. And then, you know, we proceeded to have this relationship long distance back in those days. I was, yeah, I'd fax her from Germany. <laughs> like, you know. Did you go back on tour? Yeah, I went back on tour for a bit. And then I flew her over. I bought Grace a ticket to come to England. Christmas 1995, and we got engaged at Big Ben, New Year's Eve, 95, 96. And then I went on one last tour, and that was it. In that whole period of time, we wrote stacks of letters to each other every day. We wrote letters, and we made cassette boxes. We, you know, decoupaged them, and that's how we got to know each other, through our music tastes and everything. And I would get the diems on the road, and I'd go to the nearest phone booth and stick my food money in the thing and call her at work at Eden Alley on the plaza here in Kansas City. And then I went home. I gave away everything that I had. I grabbed two bags of clothes. I went to see my mum. said, I'm never coming back. Well, not ever, but like, I'm never coming back. This is it. I remember leap year day, 1996, I called a taxi. I was in Portobello Road. I threw my bike in, two bags of clothes. Went down to Heathrow Airport, got on a plane and never looked back. And after all that touring, I only had like $1,500 in my pocket. Really? Because I was a paid musician. Yeah. I wasn't like a superstar a buster. I was a hired gun, you know. I earned like 120 bucks a night, wherever it was. You know, I got paid and I lived off that money on the road too. But it didn't matter because, it, again, it was a vehicle. I totally get your point about it being a vehicle and, and you're seeing it that way. But I'm, I'm interested, does that imbalance or disparity 
create any tensions or difficulties within a touring band? I'm sure it does at some point, but I was just having the time of my life. Honestly, many a night, you know, I mean, the guys get really messed up. I'd come on the bus many a times, and I'm honest, and I'd find like $20,000 in cash rolled up on the floor, and I'd give it back to Buster. We were in New Orleans, one tour, and he decided to put, I think it was about $30,000. He wrapped it in a towel and put it in one of those towel racks you squash towels into. And it wasn't until we got to Tallahassee that he remembered he'd left it in the hotel. And we called the hotel and they said, oh, we had a, a young maid quit today. <laughs> She's gone with the money. You know, you know, I didn't really think about money because I was eating, I was playing drums, I was partying, I was having a great time, making great friendships, and I was going around the world. I mean, I was doing like, you know, what I dreamed of on a tour bus, looking at the world through a windshield, as the song goes. Every day was an adventure to me. And I've treated everything like that my whole life, to be perfectly honest. I still don't think the music thing's over for me. I think there's something out there maybe one day. Who knows? We have the reunion of the old men of Scar, maybe. I don't know. But I think that I've been really fortunate. But I do think you create some of your own luck as well. It sounds like you've created your own luck, but also you've got a certain outlook, a certain attitude that I think has served you well, clearly. Yeah, I've always been really positive. I've always, I've been the eternal optimist, I must admit. Well, I mean, when I got here with $1,500, two bags of clothes and a bicycle, the only way was up, you know. Plus, I married into a wonderful family. I married into a big Sicilian family from the hill in St. Louis. And it was great. I'm shocked. I've, I've told this story before, but my wife's father, Tino, he's just a great guy. I wonder what the conversation was when my wife came home and said, I've met this guy, he's English. He's in a scar band. He's got no money, no job, no prospects, no future. I think we're going to get married. So I'm surprised I'm not like in the end zone of the old Ram Stadium or something, you know, or bottom of the Mississippi. But on my wedding day in 96, we were riding to church and he hired the only London double-decker bus in oh, St. Louis nice. to take me to church. I had all my buddies on there and they were all hammered from the night before. There's about 50 people on the bus. I get on the bus and he, um, he probably killed me for telling this, but he uh, wrote me a check. For like, I think about $40,000, he wrote me a check and he gave it to me and he goes, you can get off the bus right now. He goes, you don't have to marry my daughter. I don't mind. He goes, we'll have a party. You can move on. You can go with your buddies. You can go to Vegas. This check will clear. You can go. And my buddies are behind me like, take the money, you know, but I didn't take the money. I tore the check in half. And I'm sure a lot of people thought, oh, it never work because, you know, the odds were there, I suppose, you know, but here we are like 27 years this year. Why'd you say that? Why'd you say the odds were against you? Well, I think I came here. I think America is a very, I don't think it's so much today, but back then, everyone's very, what college did you go to? It's all about what college did you attend? What school did you do? this? I didn't attend any of those things. So I was always kind of on the back foot, having to work twice as hard to kind of get a leg up. I think things have changed a little bit in this country. I think it's not so much about that anymore. They care about different things, I hope, but probably had a chip on my shoulder about it a little bit, if I'm really honest about it growing up where I grew up. And uh, so I suppose I just got into sales and, and excelled, but I met people who gave me amazing chances in this country. I mean, there's a company called DEG Digital. Now they sold recently, Neil Sharma, Jeff Eden, Dale Singh and Sky. They gave me an opportunity to work for their company that changed my life, changed my life. It really did. And there's been people like that throughout my life, but great friends, you know, the, the guys that became groomsmen in my wedding, some of them are from Let's Go Bowling, the Scar Band out of Fresno, California. Lifelong friends, great friends. Just really great, great people I've met across. I've been fortunate, really fortunate. 
so you came over on uh, Leap Year Day 1996. You were married in 1996. When exactly? September 14th. September 14th. So you got married quite quickly after arrival here. When did you start that job that changed your life? You're just talking about DEG Digital. I had to go through the process of getting a green card and uh, all those types of things. And I had a couple of jobs. My wife was back in those days. Uh, she started off as a chef and she went on to work for a company called Grafton, which was a staffing agency. It was like kind of um, administrative type stuff. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm even good for. Two weeks ago, I was on stage in front of 25,000 people with Buster Blood Vessel. And you know, when you fill out your resume, your last employer, Mr. Buster Blood Vessel, it's kind of like ridiculous. So she would place me in these jobs. Then I went to sell phones. I went to aerial communications, which became T-Mobile. And I used to go to a place up on 67th and I-35 here in Kansas City. And I'd pull up in my Honda Accord, 200,000 miles it had on it with a hatchback. And the guy would throw 20 phones in the back of my car. And he's like, you're responsible for those phones. And he goes, go sell them. So I used to go door to door selling phones to people. And then I met a guy who had a little studio selling area rugs to the trade. And we became friends and he said, come and work for me. And then I worked for him and we grew it from like this one little room to about 10,000 square foot showroom. And then 9-11 happened and the bottom fell out of it and I lost my job. And then my buddy called me up. He says, have you ever sold websites? I'm like, no. He goes, do you want to? I'm like, yeah. I went to my start. So I literally went downtown and the guy said, there's a phone, there's a laptop, go sell websites. So I was like, you need a website? And that's when I met the guys from DEG. It just kind of meandered. And well, the guy who owns DEG, Neil Sharma, was a huge fan of Bad Manners. And his first ever concert was a band called Let's Go Bowling, who were in my wedding. It's such a weird life, you know. And his first concert he ever went to was a Scar concert at the Outhouse in Lawrence, Kansas. And I was at a party about 10 years ago in Fresno where I told them about Neil. And one of the guys at the party had a photograph of Neil when he was 16 on his laptop. I mean, there's so these, all these small world coincidences that have kind of gone through my life. And people have really been kind to me in America, really kind. Sounds like America's changed your life. It did. It really did. I live in a lovely neighborhood. And if you'd have said to me like 20 years ago, would you live here? I, I probably would have said yes. But I would have figured out how to do it. I'd have just kind of figured out, okay, how do I do it? You know, I've always been that kind of a person. I'm always kind of just jump in and swim like crazy. I know if it's, a, if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's kind of served me well. And my mum raised me with the basic tenants. Yes, please. No, thank you. You know, respect your elders, respect everybody. You know, do the right thing. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. I mean, they're the things that I think are missing a lot of the times nowadays, you know, so... I think those things are important. They're important to me. I've raised my children that way too. You've touched on it a little bit about the difficulties of your background compared to what people were expecting here. What was life like adjusting to America? How did you find it? Did you slip right in? Did it take time? Are you there now? Do you still feel like an outsider sometimes? I think it was difficult at first. And I think I was really hard-headed about a lot of things. I'd been on the road for years, lived out of a suitcase, it was a really big adjustment, but it was one that I really wanted. You know, I think it was really hard for me for a long time to adjust. My wife would probably tell you that. I used to sleep sitting upright because I was on the bus. No. I'd like, you know, I would like to sleep. <laughs> no, really? Yeah, I would sleep up. And we started off married life literally in a one room in a house. It was kind of funny, you know, and I, was, I had all my clothes in my suitcase still. She's like, you can unpack your bag. Again, I think I didn't go looking. I've been fortunate 
I surrounded myself with people that were way smarter than me, but also very kind people. I've got a tennis group I play with every Saturday and Sunday. The nicest bunch of guys you'll meet, and they're all very, very professional people, and they all do great things. And I've got my friend, uh, Scott, Scott Stillman, his name is, you know, he's He'd become like a brother to me. He kind of just guided me. He kind of helped me kind of over some of the hurdles that I was experiencing. And he'd come and meet me and talk to me and say, you're doing that wrong. I'm like, okay. You know, and like, so I got coached by people and to acclimate to a different way of life. You know, it wasn't dead easy, but I wanted to be successful and I wanted to have children and I wanted to do those things. And I would do anything to make those things happen, change anything about myself or try at least. Well, it sounds like you've achieved exactly that with your, your daughter going to college last Saturday. Well done. Yeah, she's a Jayhawk. Yeah, I don't know what that means. Someone's going to have to help me out here. Kansas Jayhawk, yeah. <laughs> okay, right, Kansas Jayhawk. Yeah, she's a Kansas Jayhawk, yeah. No, I'm very proud because, again, it's the first person in my entire family to ever have gone to college. and That's awesome. But I'm also very proud of my son. My son decided he wanted to go into the trades. And equally as commendable, equally amazing, he's been an apprentice plumber for the last year and a bit, and he works his behind off. And I've got that attitude too. I'm a grafter. The old-fashioned, hard-working, get in the dirt. You can't see my garden from here, but I think you'd be pretty amazed at my gardening and the house I built for the kids over in the woods and all the projects I've done and just the crazy stuff I've done over the years that have injured myself many times. But I don't know any other way than to do it the right way, and it's always generally hard work to do it that way. I don't know any other way to do it. I don't like cutting corners. I don't cut corners. I just jump right in and figure it out. Are you an American now? I've got a green card. I do want to become a citizen because uh, I want to vote. But I'm not going to go down that road. But I, I want to vote. So I do need to become a citizen of the United States, actually. That's going to be my next thing I'm going to do. I've been a green card citizen since I've been here. Why? What stopped you thus far? You know, I don't really know. I knew you were going to ask me that question. I love where I'm from. I respect where I'm from. But this is my home. This truly is my home. And... I love the United States. It's been amazing to me. It welcomed me. It gave me opportunities I never thought I would actually be able to create for myself. I don't like people who knock America. I do not. I, if you knock America, we're not going to get along. <laughs> we're not going to get along because every place has its faults. I mean, like, you know, I, I'd like to drop some of these people who knock the United States. Go and live on the council estate for a few weeks. Go and try it out. See how you get on. I wouldn't say we're spoiled here. I know there's a lot of problems in the United States. There's problems everywhere. I think, you know, I truly believe we should be spending more money on looking after our citizens more than anything, actually. But America's been really good to me. Really good. Yeah, I knew that about you. And I can also tell from the conversations we've had, not just this one, but previous ones, what America means to you on a personal level and kind of like what it represents to you, that city on a hill that you hear about. thought you were going to say you were a US citizen. It surprised me that you haven't yet. I thought you were a prime candidate. You know, I used to have a group of friends in Kansas City and they were all English. And I stopped hanging out with them. I won't name any names. I stopped hanging out with them because all they wanted to do is go to a bar, drink, and be obnoxiously loud, as English people can do. I'm getting triggered because that is such a thing. Yeah. I was like, this is not me. I mean, they would. one of the guys sadly has passed away, and he was a, one of my favorite guys. He really was a nice guy, but he would literally, on 4th of July, he would hire a red coat outfit oh, and go out drinking. And oh, uh, That's not cool. That's not cool. Well, he was a military guy. He was a Navy gunner. Great guy. But, you know, I just got tired of all that mentality, that British, you know, mentality. I love being English. I love so many things about where I come from. Even the bad stuff I love. I don't hold grudges ever 
about anything. But the bottom line is, that's not me. It's not good to be that way anymore. Oh, no, Steve, I was that way for a while. I grew up in that kind of culture. Wherever we went, we went to get pissed and, and be obnoxious. And like, then I moved to Dubai and did the same thing in Dubai. Then I moved to America, did it for a little while in America, but it was not well received. But then step back from that. And then a few years on, looking back at it, you're like, oh my God, that is just so embarrassing. It's so cringeworthy. It's so obnoxious, to use your term. And then recently, we went, very recently, May time, we went on holiday to Mexico. And we were in a resort. It was half Brits, half Americans. And for the first time, we wanted to be thought of as the Americans. And it was <laughs> really, they were northern as well. They were from our part of the world. We haven't been around that many Brits from our part of the world for a, that prolonged period of time for many, many years. My wife was completely triggered. It was tough. And it's exactly the behavior you're talking about, particularly on the arrival day. That was the worst day. <laughs> there are certain things about England that I miss from the standpoint of social in the sense that if I was to sort of walk out of here right now and go to a bar, maybe, depending on the bar, but most bars, and I just walk up to somebody and start talking, they'd be thinking like, who's this weird guy coming up to me? Whereas in the UK, I grew up talking to the old soldiers and the old ladies and just sitting there in the pub, and we would all really be very communal and, and have fantastic conversations. And it didn't matter where you came from or anything. The pub was a place you could go and you were accepted and meet people. I do miss that side of England. I 100% agree. And I tell people who I work with, it's like our church. I don't go to church, but going to the pub was like our church. And I've yeah. never lived somewhere where I wasn't within walking distance of a pub. And now I do. And I cannot tell you how much I miss it. Not being able to just walk into a pub and have a couple of beers with a crowd you know, where the people know your name. I really miss it. I, I don't miss the flip side of it, which is the culture you described. And then I've also experienced recently. I do not miss that. And, you know, looking back on it, I'm really quite ashamed and embarrassed about it. But I truly miss that aspect of British life, which is the pub as like a part of the community. No, I agree. My brothers, I've uh, got two brothers, they play rugby in Harpenden and I played for St. Albans for a little while, but I used to enjoy that and the guys just hanging out after. But a lot of times it would all go pear-shaped about nine o'clock. And uh, it just gets out of control. And I've been on trips and it, it just gets obnoxious just to be British. I just don't enjoy that anymore. The behavior is really louty and it's all accepted. And now I've kind of got out of it. I look back on it. It's kind of unbelievable that it's accepted and just part of the culture. I'm glad to be out of that. Tell me about the future. What are your plans? Are? Kids are obviously off your hands, largely. I see a drum kit behind you. Yeah, I still play. I love to play. Again, it's like your life has different shapes, and this is not so much of a part of that shape in my life right now, playing. You know, we just got Poppy. My daughter's name's Poppy. She just went off to university, and David's kind of finding his feet, and he wants to leave home, I can tell. And, you know, me and Grace are at that point now, we're sort of reflecting a little bit. It's like, well, what next? It's kind of fun, actually, in many respects. Both work really hard. We both love to travel. We was kind of joked, you know, it's like any relationship. We had two children. One did dance. One did soccer and dirt bikes, and as a couple, you kind of go like this. You go to dance, and I go to soccer and bikes, and then the kids grow up, and then hopefully you meet at the end. Somewhere there, relationships kind of go that way, you know, where they disappear from each other. But we're sort of coming back together, and I'm late 50s now. I don't want to work all my life. I know Grace doesn't want to work all her life. We want to enjoy what we've worked hard for and do some trips and just take some time together because I've really loved raising my kids. I'm in the early stages of this now. I've got a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And it's just really intense. It's phenomenally rewarding, but it's also incredibly intense because we've got no family around or anything. It's just my wife and I. We both work really hard. And I mentioned to you before we got on this call, one of my dogs passed away yesterday. 
And this dog was uh, been with us for 11 years. He was our first baby. But he had struggles towards the end of his life. He had very, very poor control of his bladder <laughs> and, and other bodily functions, right? So we've got a four-year-old, a one-year-old, a dog who's just creating absolute havoc all the time. And I tell you, now he's gone. What I would do to stand in one more puddle, I'll tell you right now. And it's kind of given me another appreciation for like where I'm at right now. And I think I'm, I'm much better at this than I would have been already living in the present. But I tell you, it's given me a, a resolve to like just try and enjoy the struggle. It's part of the journey. And I know the more effort I put in now, the more I'll get back in the future. I got a couple of bands I play with locally just around town. It's really good fun. They're good friends. Uh, one, we write all our own music, and that's kind of fun to do that, just because you're writing original music. You're not just doing the theme from Friends and, and 20 other covers. You know, we do a lot of covers and stuff like that. So I really enjoy that. I don't think I'll ever stop playing. I got too many drum kits and too much stuff, actually. But, like, I throw myself into it like I'm 25 still. I ache so bad the next day after shows. It's a physical experience, isn't it, drumming? Like, really physical. Yeah, and I'm a pretty physical person, so... I really throw myself into shows. I don't really pay for it, but I do get pretty beaten up. But I love it. I don't know how to do it any other way. If you said, Steve, could you play like kind of that part really quiet? And I'm like, I could. It's like, it's not me. I'm, I'm full on. I grew up with punk and new wave and scar. And I love fast, powerful scar music. Good. Do you think you'll stay where you are? You think you'll stay in Kansas City? Or could you see yourself moving elsewhere? You know, I think we will stay here. My wife's got family, obviously, in St. Louis. So I think we'll stay in Kansas City for the foreseeable future. Probably downsize at some point. You know, we've got a, a quite a big house, so it's way too big for two people, to be perfectly honest. But I don't think I could sell it right now because <laughs> I could buy half the house for twice the cost and a 7% mortgage rate. Where I, that'd be kind of silly. But I love my neighbors. They're really great. They're all getting kind of old. And I'm getting old, but they're getting really old. Actually, there's a couple up the street. They just sewed my face up for me about six weeks ago because I went to the gym and I threw one of those great big, I thought it was a medicine ball, but it was actually a bouncy ball, 20 pounds. And I was just tired from work and I threw it with all my might down and it came back and broke my nose no and split way. my nose. Oh my gosh. So I'm lucky my neighbor, three doors up, she's a facial plastic surgeon and she sewed it up at the kitchen table. Gave me a glass of whiskey and sewed it up <laughs> no, at the kitchen table. Oh, you're kidding table. me. No, no yeah, she's no. great. For real? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. So I've got a good neighbors and it's a great street to live on. Yeah, I've got great neighbours as well. Steve, this is a podcast about being an expat in America. Um, one of the themes that always comes up is the American dream. It means different things to different people. Get some people rather upset. So I'm going to ask you, what does the American dream mean to you? I don't think it's about money. And I don't think it's about the house I live in. For me, it's really about being able to change the trajectory of my kids' lives. Having grown up one way and statistically speaking, probably should have gone a different direction with the circumstances I grew up in. And I'm not special. Don't get me wrong. There are so many kids who grew up in circumstances worse than mine. It was just that that was my life. So for me to raise kids, you know, that's been my dream and to send two people out into the world, the opposite of everything I ever known. My wife calls me George Costanza all the time because I like I do everything, and I refer to George Costanza episodes in Seinfeld all the time, and there's the one where he does the opposite. I've always done the opposite of everything I've ever known. My dad was an asshole. I'm not an asshole. My dad stole, robbed, lied, cheated. I don't do what my dad did. I'm the opposite. And so, for me, the American dream has been the ability to create a life for myself where I can raise great children, and they can go into the world and be the opposite and do good things. I think if enough people raise kids that do good things, we'll have just a lot more good things happening as opposed to the opposite. Very cool. 
Do your kids have any connection to Britain at all? Do they feel British in any way? I don't really know. I mean, my son, David, he's your true American kid. I mean, he's out there sending me videos on his back wheel on the highway, and he's out there hunting and he likes shooting. That is very American. <laughs> he's got his truck. <laughs> he's got his dirt bike riding all the time, blowing up things. Um, you know, we had half sticks of dynamite at 4th of July, and we were sending bins about 100 feet into the air. He's that kind of kid, and there. So, I don't know. I'm extremely happy being here right now in the United States. Yeah, I'll never go back to live. Never. Couldn't do it. There's no point in going back. I see on Facebook, I'm in a group, I think it's called Brits in Kansas. There was one called Brits in America. I never made a comment. I never made comments on Facebook. But I was just listening to people's stories about how they were so disgruntled and upset with America. And I was like, I just can't see it. I just can't see it. But maybe that's just me. Maybe that's my blinkered vision of what I wanted. I'm in one of those groups. And what I'm struck by is how lonely some expats are. In a way, it's a reflection of the theme of this podcast, always an expat. You're an expat in America, but if you went back to the UK now, you would be an expat there. You would not be British in the same way you were when you left. So you're always an expat. There's a loneliness in a way that comes from that, but there's also massive growth and horizon widening. I'm struck by that Facebook group well, one, I'm struck by some of the terrible advice that's dished out. And two, I'm, I'm often struck by just how lonely some people are. They haven't really found a place here and they go back and they haven't, they don't feel at home there and they feel a bit adrift and that's kind of sad. Like the expat experience, obviously it can result in that, but the idea is you want to do what you've done, which is leverage that into wider networks and more people and bigger thinking. And some people don't seem to have made that transition. Yeah, it is interesting to sit down with people and how they absolutely just go on about things that are just so, I don't know, I'm like, I don't know how you can kind of function when you have so much invested in where you were. You've got to invest in where you are. I don't get it. One thing I found was that when I came here, I keep saying this every podcast, people are going to tell me to shut up soon, but I expected America to be one thing. They speak English, I speak English, it's the next colony. We were familiar with it from TVs and movies and all that good stuff, so I got here and I expected America to be one thing, and America is something totally different. It's got its own values, its own processes, its own way of doing things, its own legal system, and I found that really, really hard, and I resented it, and I bitched and moaned and whinged for a long time and then eventually once I realized I was here for good I'd got a career I'd got a job got kids I got a house I kind of just gave up on all that and said right I'm not I'm just going to stop fighting it I'm going to relax into it and I'm going to I'm going to meet America where America is because America apparently isn't going to change for Richard Taylor and life just got better I don't like everything I don't love everything but rather than complain and bitch and whinge about it I kind of just got with the program and like life has got so much better since then and I just think that a lot of these people have never actively made that decision I still want it to be Little Britain or Big Britain. No, I agree. The amount of people who come up to me at these events I go to and they say, where can you find the best fish and chips? I'm like, yes, yes. I am that guy actually though, but yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I've embraced this culture. I've embraced it. I've not forgotten where I'm from, but I've embraced it head on and jumped straight in and just loved it. If I was to die today, I've had a fantastic life and I would not be unhappy. It's been fantastic. Yeah, I'll also say, sounds like you've had a fantastic life and also you left a legacy. And I don't mean a financial legacy. Maybe you have, I don't know, but I mean you've left a legacy in your kids, so well done. The final note, I will just say, despite all that, I will never stop missing good pubs and a good chippy. I'll never stop. In that order too. <laughs> good pub, good chippy. 
soak it up on the yes, way home. Yeah, yeah. You know. Good times. Right. Well, look, Steve, this has been a great podcast. You are a fantastic guest. What a life you've lived. Thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. It's been a breath of fresh air. I've really enjoyed it. You're very welcome. Thank you. We've enjoyed having you. You've been a great guest. Thanks, Steve. Thank you so much. Thank you.